Good morning. Welcome to Infinite Coffee with Michael and Deanne Goss. Today we're reading The Creative Process in the Individual by Thomas Troward. We're in Chapter 2 entitled Self-Contemplation of Spirit. Now we we left off uh, where Troward is introducing the concept of thought as the catalyst for all physical things and conditions. And he's laying out the process that preceded the creation of the universe, the planets, and all the other physical manifestations. And he ended with this. He's using an analogy to kind of communicate what this looks like. The difference between universal mind and universal substance. And the illustration he uses is a broom and a tandle. The two together make a broom. That is one sort of relation. But take the same stick and put a rake iron at the end of it, you have an altogether different implement. So the stick remains the same, but the difference is what is put at the end of it that makes the whole thing either a broom or a rake. Now the thinking and feeling power is the stick, and the conception which it forms is the thing at the end of the stick so that the quality of its consciousness will be determined by the ideas which it projects but to be conscious at all it must project ideas of some sort now of one thing we may be quite sure that the spirit of life must feel alive then to feel alive it must be conscious and to be conscious it must have something to be conscious of. Therefore, the contemplation of itself as standing related to something which is not its own originating self in propria persona is a necessity of the case. And consequently, the self-contemplation of spirit can only proceed by its viewing itself as related to something standing out from itself just as we must stand at a proper distance to see a picture. In fact, the very word existence means standing out. Thus, things are called into existence or outstandingness by a power which itself does not stand out and whose presence is therefore indicated by the word subsistence. The next thing is that since in the beginning... There is nothing except spirit. Its primary feeling of aliveness must be that of being alive all over. And to establish such a consciousness of its own universal livingness, there must be the recognition of a corresponding relation equally extensive in character. And the only possible correspondence to fulfill this condition is therefore that of a universally distributed and plastic medium whose particles are all in perfect equilibrium, which is exactly the description of the primary substance or ether. We're thus philosophically led to the conclusion that universal substance must be projected by universal spirit as a necessary consequence of spirit's own inherent feeling of aliveness. And in this way, we find that the great primary polarity of being becomes established. Now, from this point onward, we shall find the principle of polarity in universal activity. 
It is that relation between opposites without which no external motion would be possible because there would be nowhere to move from and nowhere to move to. And without which external form would be impossible because there would be nothing to limit the diffusion of substance and bring it into shape. Polarity or the interaction of active and passive is therefore the basis of all evolution. This is a great fundamental truth when we get it in its right order. But all through the ages, it has been a prolific source of error by getting it in its wrong order. And the wrong order consists in making polarity the originating point of the creative process. What this misconception leads to, we shall see later on, but since it is very widely accepted under various guises, even at the present day, it is well to be on our guard against it. Therefore, I wish the student to see clearly that there is something which comes before that polarity, which gives rise to evolution, and that this something is the original movement of spirit within itself, of which we can best get an idea by calling it self-contemplation. Now, this may seem an extremely abstract conception and one with which we have no practical concern. I fancy I can hear the reader saying, the Lord only knows how the world started and it's his business and not mine, which would be perfectly true if this originating faculty were confined to the cosmic mind, but it is not. And the same action takes place in our own minds also, only with the difference that it is ultimately subject to that principle of cosmic unity of which I have already spoken. But subject to that unifying principle, this same power of origination is in ourselves also, and our personal advance in evolution depends on our right use of it. And our use of it depends on our recognition that we ourselves give rise to the particular polarities which express themselves in our whole world of consciousness, whether within or without. For these reasons, it's very important to realize that evolution is not the same as creation. It is the unfolding of potentialities involved in the things already created, but not the calling into existence of what does not yet exist. That is creation. The order, therefore, which I wish the student to observe is, first, the self-contemplation of spirit producing polarity, and next, polarity producing manifestation in form, and also to realize that it is in this order his own mind operates as a subordinate center of creative energy. His own mind operates as a subordinate center of creative energy. When the true place of polarity is thus recognized, we shall find in it the explanation of all those relations of things which give rise to the whole world of phenomena, from which we may draw the practical inference that if we want to change the manifestation, we must change the polarity. And to change the polarity, we must get back to the self-contemplation of spirit. But in its proper place as the root principle of all secondary causation, 
Polarity is one of those fundamental facts of which we must never lose sight. The term polarity is adopted from electrical science. In the electric battery, it is the conducting together of the opposite poles of zinc and copper that causes the current to flow from one to the other and so provide the energy that rings the bell. If the connection is broken, there is no action. When you press the button, you make the connection. The same process is repeated in respect of every sort of polarity throughout the universe. Circulation depends on polarity, and circulation is the manifestation of life, which we may therefore say depends on the principle of polarity. In relation to ourselves, we are concerned with two great polarities, the polarity of soul and body, and the polarity of soul and spirit. And it is in order that he may more clearly realize their working that I want the student to have some preliminary idea of polarity as a general principle. The conception of the creative order may therefore be generalized as follows. The spirit wants to enjoy the reality of its own life, not merely to vegetate, but to enjoy giving. And therefore, by self-contemplation, it projects a polar opposite or complementary calculated to give rise to the particular sort of relation out of which the enjoyment of a certain mode of self-consciousness will necessarily spring. Let this sentence be well pondered over until the full extent of its significance is grasped, for it is the key to the whole matter. Very well then, spirit wants to enjoy life, and so by thinking of itself as having the enjoyment which it wishes, It produces the conditions by which their reaction upon itself give rise to the reality of the sort of enjoyment contemplated. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think we can go back to that sentence in camp there. Well, the the one that he said we should ponder, ponder, but then the sentence that you just read is really good too. So he says, and and the sentence that you're referring to is not a sentence in the traditional sense. It's a paragraph. It's a very lengthy four lines worth of content. Let me read. The, let me read the, the, okay. what I'm about to read is one, one sentence. sentence. This is Troward's writing at its best. The spirit wants to enjoy the reality of its own life, not merely to vegetate, but to enjoy giving. And therefore, by self-contemplation, it projects a polar opposite or complementary calculated to give rise to the particular sort of relation out of which the enjoyment of a certain mode of self-consciousness will necessarily spring. That's a two-breath sentence. And in my mind's eye, this is how, as I'm reading, this is, this is how it's, this is what's being projected up there. I'm, in a sense, seeing things, once again, there is no earth, there, is, there are no planets, there are no people, there's nothing, there's no things. There's just spirit. There's just God, if you will. Now, the challenge with that is since it is in that state, there is really no form. So I don't see anything, but I can feel something and I can think something because that can exist without form. And so once again, and it goes back a little bit to where in Genesis it talks about, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then he, then he describes what he wants that man to be able to do in effect. And what... Troward is describing here is that the spirit wants to enjoy the reality of its own life. And so it's, it created something 
from whence it can live. It created something where it could live and enjoy and exist. We've had this idea that, in effect, people, us, kind of like God's little you know, play toys. But in reality, it's bigger than that. He didn't do it, in a sense, so he could have a companion. He's not looking for a friend. Sure. He's not looking for a servant or somebody to serve. I mean, what a foolish thing to think that he would put us down here to be his servants. I mean, or to be whatever you want to, along that line, makes no sense. Because he's the creator, creator of the universe. He doesn't need, there is no need for servants. What, he created this whole thing so he could have servants to take care of something he created? That makes, that just, that doesn't make sense. That we're down here to earn our way into something. That just, that, right. that doesn't pass the smell nope. test. What he has done, in effect, he created something that he could inhabit. He created something that he could live in. That's why he created man, quote, in his image. He created himself. He created for himself something for himself. And it says for, for his own sake. There's a number of verses that says for his sake. This was for God's benefit for God. Self-contemplation. And he created the whole of the universe, the whole of the material physical universe, including the humans, including us, for his enjoyment. So he could live here. So he could be here. Because what is it that inhabits you and me? What is the spirit that inhabits you and me? That's God. That's God. It's, yeah. it's his spirit in me. We're the tabernacle. We're the temple. We're, you can look at all the pictures that the Bible paints of what is inside of us. But at the end of it, our physical body is the dwelling place. It's the house for not the spirit of God, God's spirit itself. That's what Troward is saying. That's what resides in us. It's not mm-hmm. a lower kind of spirit. It's not a lesser spirit. It's his spirit, particularized. It's individualized. The same spirit, Jesus said it this yeah. way, the same spirit that dwells in me or the same mm-hmm. spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in me. This is how the Bible, the New Testament, talks about that. But that same spirit that dwells in me dwells in you and dwells in every human on the planet. It's not a different spirit. It's the same spirit because it's <laughs> it's only one spirit that there is. It's God. It's not you have one spirit and I have a different spirit. We have the same. That's what connects us together as people is we share the same spirit. God's spirit is what we all share. Now, it's packaged somewhat differently. Okay? We have different packages. But at the end of the day, what's inside us is that. And so as we go into this a little further, okay, because I, I think we're still... I'm not sure we fully grasp yet what God did and why he did it. And he did it for his own benefit. He did it so he could have and enjoy life, life. and life mm-hmm. more abundantly. Right. Have and enjoy all of the turmoil, all of the problems, all of the pain and all the, the stuff that we as humans live through, if you will. That was never, that isn't God's deal. That's a result of twisted thinking wickedness, twisted thinking. So he says right here, he goes, the spirit, spirit wants to enjoy life. Now listen to this. And so by thinking of itself as having the enjoyment, which it wishes, it produces the conditions, which by their reaction upon itself, 
give rise to the reality of the sort of enjoyment contemplated. Spirit wants to enjoy life. And so by thinking of itself as having the enjoyment which it wants, it produces the conditions by the reaction upon itself, which give rise to the sort of enjoyment contemplated, what we're thinking about. Once again, in more scientific language, an opposite polarity is induced, giving rise to the current or the energy which stimulates a particular mode of sensation, that becomes a fresh starting point for still further action because there is connection to make connection like the dominoes start to fall. But the first step in the process is self-contemplation of spirit by thinking of itself as having the enjoyment which it wishes. So for you and me, place that we start to live this life that we're talking about, it has to begin in our thought life. It's not, well, when conditions get perfect, then I'll have this great life. No, that's... It's opposite of that. It's reverse. It's exactly the opposite of that. You're right. Because if we allow the outside things Mm -hmm. to dictate what we do internally, now we're allowing conditions and we're allowing the things around us to control our thought life. And when we allow that, then that's the production. So remember, everything begins or originates with a thought. And thought could be something based on what I see, out in the world or out in the conditions around me, results potentially, or I can go into self-contemplation and ask myself the question, so what, what, do, what is it that I really want? What is it that I desire? It says here the spirit wants, okay, that's a desire, to enjoy the reality of its own life. It wants something. I need to want something. I have to have that desire. What is the desire that I have? And that's what I think about. I don't think about the conditions or what I don't have. I think about what it is that I do want. And the moment I do that, I can create an image. I can create an idea. I can create a situation in my mind that may have no basis in my conditions. Nothing in my conditions may support that idea. doesn't matter. Because what happens is the moment I create that idea... I actually, because the idea is a thing, we talked about that before, Mm -hmm. it has a vibration, it begins the ripple effect in the quantum field. That's what's actually going on. And according to Trout here, he said, it begins to create its polar opposite. So what is the opposite of limitless? Limited. Mm -hmm. So when I create an unlimited or a limit, I create that thought, it begins to create its polar opposite, which is a form, a physical form to match that mental image. And the only thing that gets in the way of that is if I choose not to believe it. Mm-hmm. But the key here is not the process. I think for most of us, the key is to really understand that it was God's idea to create things for fun, for enjoyment. That everything in this planet, everything that we have here, was all created for him to enjoy through us. That if we enjoy it, he enjoys it. If we're miserable, he's miserable. That's the whole thing. And there's no reason for us to be miserable. Miserable, We don't have to do that. We can actually live the life of our dreams. And that doesn't mean necessarily that everybody's going to have a billion dollars and fly around in jets and all that silliness that you see people portray that that's what it means to be living your dreams. I think that is such a uh, 
immature picture of what life can be like. Yes, it's nice to fly in private jets. Yes, it's nice to have a big house and all. That's, those are all nice. They can, they can be, I should say. Those can be nice things. But for most of us, that's not a real life. Life is the family. Life is Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays. That's way more important than, you know, however many times I fly on a private jet. Yeah, and showing up to those holidays or those occasions healthy and of sound mind. If you don't have that and you're flying around, what good is the flying around? Yeah, what good is it if... if and absolutely, if you have both, yay, that's awesome too. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but for sure, um, when you said that, the first thing I thought of was at, at Thanksgiving dinner, everyone's healthy. And happy. And happy. Fulfilled. And able to, like we're saying, enjoy life and life more abundantly. And they're, uh, they're at peace with each other. You know, mm-hmm. So many families, you know, aren't that way. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is worth so much more. That's real life stuff. Um, being at peace in your home, you know, in our marriage. That's an invaluable experience to have peace and joy each and every day on this planet. And if we're not doing that, I remember our good friend Mylon Lefevre used to say, man, if you ain't enjoying this thing, you're doing it wrong. Uh, and he's right. Because the circumstances happen, you know, we don't control all of that. Some things happen and it's out of our control. But what's totally within our control is our response to it. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. That's our freedom. And that's what he's talking about here. And so he's going back and forth between what I would call abstract and science. Okay, because we've introduced now the law of polarity and that everything creates a polar opposite. And, uh, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, as we, as we saw in the analogy of the battery, that doesn't mean, even though on all of our batteries it has a plus on one end and a minus on the other, that's indicating the two different poles of that battery. But it doesn't mean one's a positive and one's a negative, although we call it that. But not negative in the sense of bad. Sure. Just it indicates which end it is. And that's important as we go forward here. So we'll continue on here because it says now, such a conception as this, this fuller enjoyment of life, presents us with a progressive series to which it is impossible to assign any limit. That the progression must be limitless is clear from the fact that there is never any change in the method. At each successive stage, the creating power is the self-consciousness of the spirit as realized at that stage, still reaching forward for yet further enjoyment of life. And so always keeping on repeating the one creative process at an ever-rising level. And since these are the sole working conditions, the progress is one which logically admits of no finality. And this is where the importance of realizing the singleness of the originating power comes in. For with a duality, each member would limit the other. In fact, duality as the originating power is inconceivable for once more to quote Patty's philosophy, finality would be reached before anything was begun. 
The creative process, therefore, can only be conceived of as limitless, while at the same time strictly progressive. That is, proceeding stage by stage, each stage being necessary as a preparation for the one that is to follow. Let us then briefly sketch the stages by which things in our world have got as far as they have. The interest of the inquiry lies in the fact that if we can once get at the principle which is producing these results, we may discover some way of giving it personal application. On the hypothesis of the self-contemplation of spirit being the originating power, we have found that a primary ether or universal substance is the necessary correspondence to spirit's simple awareness of its own being. But though awareness of being is the necessary foundation for any further possibilities, it is, so to say, not much to talk about. The foundation fact, of course, is to know that I am. But immediately on this consciousness, there follows the desire for activity. I want to enjoy my I amness by doing something with it. Translating these words into a state of consciousness in the cosmic mind, they become a law of tendency leading to localized activity. And looking only at our world, this would mean the condensation of the universal etheric substance into the primary nebula, which later on becomes our solar system. This being the correspondence to the self-contemplation of spirit as passing into specific activity instead of remaining absorbed in simple awareness of being. Then this self-recognition would lead to the conception of still more specific activity having its appropriate polar opposite or material correspondence in the condensation of the nebula into a solar system. Now at this stage, spirit's conception of itself is that of activity. And consequently, the material correspondence is motion, as distinguished from the simple diffused ether, which is the correspondence of mere awareness of being. But what sort of motion? Is the material movement evolved at this stage bound to take any particular form? A little consideration will show us that it is. At this initial stage, the first awakening, so to say, of spirit into activity, its consciousness can only be that of activity absolute. That is, not as related to any other mode of activity, because as yet, there is none, but only as related to an all-embracing being, so that the only possible conception of activity at this stage is that of self-sustained activity, not depending on any preceding mode of activity, because there is none. The law of reciprocity, therefore, demands a similar self-sustained motion in the material correspondence. And mathematical considerations show that the only sort of motion which can sustain a self-supporting body moving in vacuo is a rotary motion, bringing the body itself into a spherical form. What he's talking about here is the idea or the creation of an energy that has no specific form as of yet, but yet has movement. And as this starts to take on movement, that movement then further increases itself. And the only thing that, the only form that it could take is that of a rotary motion or in circular motion. I'll continue. Now this is exactly what we find at both extremes of the material world. 
At the big end, the spheres of the planets rotating on their axis and revolving round the sun. And at the little end, the spheres of the atoms, consisting of particles which modern science tells us, in like manner, rotate round a common center at distances which are astronomical as compared with their own mass. Thus, the two ultimate units of physical manifestation, the atom and the planet, both follow the same law of self-sustained motion, which we have found that, on priori grounds, they ought in order to express the primary activity of spirit. And we may note in passing that this rotary or absolute motion is the combination of the only two possible relative modes of motion, namely motion from a point and motion to it. That is to say, centrifugal and centripetal motion. So that in rotary or absolute motion, we find that both the polarities of motion are included. Thus repeating on the purely mechanical side, the primordial principle of the unity, including the duality in itself. So, once again, he's showing us that these principles at the very basic level are the exact same principles that are working at the highest and the biggest of levels. This concept of polarity, where things are, in effect, rotating around, that happens not only at the atomic or even at the subatomic level, but it happens at the maximum level of the sun being a monstrously large thing, but that monstrously large thing is just made up of many, 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 many trillions and trillions of, uh, I don't, that's not even the right number. Whatever the biggest number we can talk about, that's how many are probably involved in just the sun. That's the coolness of it, is everything is ultimately, not only is it made out of the same thing, but it operates exactly the same way. It's not that, you know, the planets operate differently than our physical body. And when you start looking and studying and the people that get into the numerology side of this and start seeing the proportions, mm -hmm. it's remarkable to see the various proportions and how the distance from the earth to the sun is very consistent with, say, the distances within an atom between a nucleus and certain elements within that. And so you're starting to see the same math, the same proportions, just on a larger scale. But it's the same basic plan. It's the same blueprint. And why that's important for us is once we understand that what appears to be a hugely complex environment is actually not. It's a very simple system. But it's simple, and it's so simple that it has ultimate flexibility within it. It's the law of requisite variety of which we're so familiar with now. The thing in a system that has the most flexibility has the most power. Ultimately, God has the most flexibility. Therefore, that's the greatest power in the universe. And as we start to understand and be becoming more and more flexible in our thinking, now we're better able to use this flexible substance, this plastic ether that the keeps referring to, and actually create out of it what we want. And much of it has to do with just conditioning our minds to start seeing what's right there in front of us to begin with. But in this case, having that idea and say, well, why do I need to know about the rotary 
and the fact that it's spinning. The only benefit to that, I believe, or not the only, but for me, for the average person, the benefit that we can take away from this, once again, is the simplicity of it, that everything rotates in the same manner. And you go down to the bare of our bodies and you get down under the electron microscope. If we could see to that level, everything would be spinning. It'd be spinning exactly the same way. So we are, in effect, a microcosm of the universe, our physical body. And so what we see in nature should give us an indication of what we can see within ourselves. That the laws that govern the world on the outside also govern the world on the inside and govern everything around us. And so that allows us the ability now to start to take some control over that situation. Because ultimately, what is the benefit or what is the desire of all this? Said it earlier. So that God can have and enjoy what he created within his creation. And if I'm doing it and enjoying it, he's doing it and enjoying it. That's why I think the God's economy and the way he looks at what we do very differently than the way we tend to look at it. So we look at people that are going for it and they make a mistake or they fall down. And I think God's looking at it going, man, that's awesome because you're going for it. The thing that I think has got to be painful is when one of God's creations isn't living to their fullest or isn't striving potentially to live to their fullest potential. It's kind of like, and that goes back to the, uh, the parable, one of the parables that Jesus talked about of the people with the, the talents. The one that had the one talent instead of doing something, instead of going for it, buries it. And the Lord, in this case, took that one away and gave it to the one that was, had the most. Because they had the most, but they were doing the most with it. And that's what you see, is that there's some people that take advantage of these things and some don't, for fear or for whatever the reasons are. And so... That is why I really love the way Troward lays this out, because he's giving me a picture of the creator that religion doesn't necessarily give. Some, I guess, have have now started to come out with the idea that God is for you and he's not against you. I mean, it was so plain if you read the Bible. I mean, he tells Jeremiah, you know, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to, to do you good, not harm, yet for many, many, many millennia or thousands of years, whatever it is, people have believed that God's out to get them. And nothing could be further from the truth. He's not out to get them in the bad way. He's out to get them over onto the good stuff because that's what he created. He created this to to have and to enjoy. And we've kind of collectively made a little bit of a mess of it. But individually, we can step out of that at any moment. But the spirit wants something more than mechanical motion something more alive than the preliminary rota or rotary. And so the first step towards individualized consciousness meets us in plant life. Then on the principle that each successive stage affords the platform for a further outlook, plant life is followed by animal life. And this by the human order in which the liberty of selecting its own conditions is immensely extended. In this way, the spirit's expression of itself has now reached the point where its polar complementary or reciprocal manifests as intellectual man, thus constituting the fourth great stage of spirit's self-recognition. But the creative process cannot stop here. 
For as we have seen, its root in the self-contemplation of spirit renders it of necessity an infinite progression. So it is no use asking what is its ultimate, for it has no ultimate. Its word is excelsior, ever life and life more abundant. Therefore, the question is not as to finality, where there is none, but as to the next step in the progression. Four kingdoms we know. What is to be the fifth? All along the line of progress has been in one direction, namely toward the development of a more perfect individuality. And therefore, on the principle of continuity, we may reasonably infer that the next stage will take us still further in the same direction. We want something more perfect than we have yet reached, but our ideas as to what it should be are very various, not to say discordant. For one person's idea of better is another person's idea of worse. Therefore, what we want to get at is some broad generalization of principle which will be in advance of our past experiences. This means that we must look for this principle in something that we have not yet experienced. And the only place where we can possibly find principles which have not yet manifested themselves is in Grimio Dei. That is, in the innermost of the originating spirit, or as St. John calls it, in the bosom of the Father. So we are logically brought to personal participation in the divine ideal as the only principle by which the advance into the next stage can possibly be made. Therefore, we arrive at the question, what is the divine ideal like? And of course, that's where we will take this up next time. <laughs> well, he says something interesting there that we have a, per what does it say, a personal invitation? So we are logically brought to personal participation in the divine ideal as the only principle by which the advance into the next, next stage can possibly be made. So personal participation, meaning we have a role to play mm -hmm. in this. Exactly. And we can participate, but in order to participate, we have to know what it is that we're participating in, because if we know where we're going, so to speak, or at least ideally where we would like to go, that's the divine ideal, then that'll give us an idea of what we can do to get us further as a race, but also as individuals, further down that road. Yeah, that's good. For some reason, I uh, interpreted that as invitation. Well, you but think about it, it yeah. And, but at the same time, participating in life. But that's really good what you just said, knowing where we're going so we can jump in and take action and live that way. Is it the Wizard of Oz that has the Cheshire Cat? <laughs> that's uh, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. Okay, I knew it was one of those fantastical... And uh, Alice, I guess, is, is going, going, is she in the woods or something? Uh, tell, uh, Alice, is she in, she in the Wonderland, I assume. I think she's dreaming, and she goes down. I think down. she's drunk. I think she's high or something. <laughs> she goes down the uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> of course she does. <laughs> um, so anyway, she comes to the, the, the cat, and, uh, and she says, and there's two roads there. And she, she asks the cat, which... You know, a talking cat should tell you something. Which road should I take? And so the cat asks an interesting question. He says, where are you going? And she says, I don't know. Then he says, smartly, then any road will take you there. 
you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter where, where, which road you take. It doesn't matter what you do because you don't know where you're going. And so that's why having that desire, having that understanding of what the divine ideal is, where this is going or where we would like this to go or where, in this case, God wants this to go, that allows me to get on board and to do it the right way. And in so doing, I get the benefits of that. That's why it's important that we have an understanding of where we're going so that we can also check and see, are we getting closer? <laughs> are we making progress? It's kind of difficult to understand or make that, uh, those assessments if I at least, I have to at least have an idea of where it is that I want to end up. That's the critical part. So next time, we're going to talk more about the divine ideal. Once again, this will look at it. I think this is God's mission statement. Well, I began with the end in mind. You just said it. But that's the interesting part. There is, there is no, no end. end. <laughs> that's right. That's the, there was no beginning and there is no end. There is just a continual yeah. stages in progress. And that's what life is. That's what, that's infinite. It is. That's, and that's where I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, think, well, the end's coming. The end's near. The end's like, eh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that there aren't the ends of ages and the ends of eras and that things come to ends and there is something beyond that. But life as we know it could potentially come to, could transition to something other than what we know. But I don't think... There is no end. I don't think that's ever ends. And I'm not sure we ever end. So that's a pretty cool concept and thought. But uh, next time, we'll talk more about the divine ideal. I want to thank you again for joining us on Infinite Coffee. We'll see you next time.